Good morning, and thank you for being here today to worship our God. Living to please God, by the way, a holy God. This is what stands for the first 12 verses in 1 Thessalonians 4. Living to please God. In a way, we all like to be pleased, either for a comment, an appreciation, some good treats, some invitations. We like to be pleased, to be cared for. Actually, we kind of all live to please. No question about it. But who are we investing our lives to please to? It might be yourself. It might be your spouse. It might be your kids. It might be your friends or even your job, co-workers. Or something you are devoted to. Maybe a sport club you cheer for. Now leaves gone, so I can't cheer for leaves more. Blue Jays is not convincing me yet, so I still try harder. Raptors is long gone, unfortunately. So I picked Miami Heat. So you have to pick something to have fun, cheer for, to be pleased or to please somebody. I dislike Celtic, so, and by the way, I love Jim Butler. That's what I'm cheering for. So what do we normally do when we want to please someone we love and cherish? What we do for our teams, for example. What sacrifice we make? What investment? How far we go in order to make someone happy. Past week, many of us put some effort in order to please our mothers. Ainelani wants to send, and we send gifts for our mothers. Both of us have mother, and so both of us have mother-in-law. So we agree about gifts. And I want to be sure Elani will be praised accordingly in here. So I agree with my kids. Let's do our best. The ladies deserve. So are you take care of the food? I'm going to order it. Isaac, you take care of the flowers and card. Jose, you are in the pool to make the money spread accordingly. And so we all agree about doing this. But then Friday was here at Coffee Zone, and Isaac wrote, was the first time ever I gave one of the most important tasks, buy the flowers. I always did for them. One is 28, the other is 24, but I always buy and say, give. But this time, I kind of crazily say, Isaac, it's your turn. And he said, I, I'm happy to do that. But he wrote me Friday morning. I was working and busy at the coffee zone. I didn't see his text until afternoon. So he wrote, Dad, I'm here. I'm buying which kind of flower? Oh, my gosh. Of course, when I read it, he has already bought it. And I said, Isaac, what did you buy? Tulips. 
Ah, not bad, it's good. But Friday morning, and he's wrapped up. Let's open it. No, no way, you don't wrap it. It's beautiful. He says, man, he's going to die until Friday, Sunday. So I was a little afraid of it. Make long story short, he didn't die. Cut the bottle, I agree, put in the water. But then Sunday, he says, Father, what then? I said, did you write a card? Yes. Did I? Jose, I'm going to be sure he do it. And you have to do it. You do it. But what about the flowers? I don't know. You didn't open it. It may die. And if it died, it's going to be shame. So why don't you get six more rows? And we put together. If the order is bad, we just, you know, throw away <laughs> and show the six rows. But this guy went crazy. He bought one dozen of red rows. He bought a very expensive purple orchid, orchid, orchid. And he got two balloons, not one. And then he came with these three flowers, all good, in downstairs. Dad, let's go up. He says, man, what did you do? Oh, I bought, though I was afraid that you said that, I overexceed. He says, guys, it's too much now. He says, don't you think mother deserves? He says, of course. There is nothing we will do that is excel what he has done for us in these years. So we all are happy. And if you see Elaine's picture, she's the happiest picture I have ever seen her. With her kids, with good food, with the balloon and the gift she wants to receive. There is no sacrifice. Our mothers, our fathers, our family, our friends... Never will be enough to please somebody we love. You may be sacrificed for an old mother. You may be sacrificed for an old father. You may be sacrificed for a spouse, or someone who is sick, or sick kids, or siblings. Some of your parents are sacrificed to pay maybe some of the tuitions and the living you as a student can't afford. Maybe you brought someone to live with you in order to help their cost. But now it's cost you more. It cost you something that you didn't expect. A friend, you tell. We want to please somebody badly and care for. With that in mind, let's dive into 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12. As for other matters... Finally, brothers and sisters, we instruct you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will. That you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that is this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not cause us to be impure, 
but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects his instructions does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, do not need, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. God bless his word. Living to please God. Our Christian living should not be about do and don'ts, rules or laws mainly. We do have a lot to observe, even though we are a people from grace and sometimes we forget the Bible has laws to be observed and for us to live well and please God. But our main role instead is a life that aim to please God. This is the tone Paul set for this chapter. After have commanded them, after had made an elegy, after have raised their faith and their love and the way they were testifying about the great love of God, in a prevention of wrongdoings they could be going down the road, he wants to remember them that they should aim to please God above and beyond for what he is, what he has done and is still doing throughout the accomplished work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his Holy Spirit who live in us. So I would say that the message today is about living a life that pleases God by practicing holiness and brotherly love. And when Paul speaks about sanctification or holiness, he's not only based in the obligation we have to do or to make, but in order we do it with grace, we do it cheerfully, we do it with one goal, one, one objective, one purpose, one aim in mind, to please the one who is holy, to please the one who is worthy to be praised, to please our God in heaven who loves us. So the Apostle Paul is transitioning from the good things they were doing for the awareness of things that could go wrong. So he's kind of see things around them. The way the Thessalonians live, the Greek lives, the Greek Roman power are doing, and he's trying to give awareness, a warn that they are doing great, 
and excel in doing great and keep doing greatly. So he's challenging then as born-again Christian and us, mature disciples of Christ, to live a life that aim to please God all the time. The one who created us, saved us, and is still sustaining our lives for our existence, a holy God. It's appeal not to be selfish, not to be ego-centered, but altruist, other-centered. First God and then towards our brothers and sisters. This is what is Paul talking about in these verses. As for other matters, oh, finally, brothers and sisters, we instruct you in how to live in order to please God. First, these two verses. Actually, just a heads up, there are 12 verses, three parts. One to two is one main idea, an introduction. Three to eight, the, the challenges us for sanctify ourselves. And nine to 12, to love our brothers and sisters. First, an exhortation to abound in holiness more and more. We never stop it. As Christians, we never stop growing the knowledge of our God and the love of our God and towards sanctification. Somebody may go to heaven sick. Somebody may not be able to do great things, to have diplomas, to have well, wealthy from this world. And no more of them are really required to go to heaven, but believe in Jesus. But one thing is required for us to be holy, to be sanctified. There will be no unholy people in heaven. So the apostle you touch one on two important themes, the holiness of sex and the holiness of brotherly love. We have to love our brothers and sisters holy, in a good manner, in holiness. And so to introduce this subject, this awareness that comes from verse 3 to 8 and 9 to 12, he kind of spends these two verses with three important considerations. A, a vigorous cry, a vehement cry, a strong cry in verse 1. Finally. It kind of brings up the idea that Paul is finishing his letter. But we know he's not. But he's finishing, in fact, the last session of the letter. In the three chapters, he spent by remembering what they were doing and, and, and praising them to be the joy and the crown of God's people as a church that they planted. But now he's going to give a practical uh, suggestions they should behave. So it's a ending of the letter. So he brings the idea of finishing. And some like Howard Marshall ponders that these two verses constitute an introduction to the section, but also appears as a preface to the entire and reminder letter with an ethical and exhortive tone. This is, the, this is what we have left. So Paul placed great seriousness about it in his language. He says, now we ask you and urge you. The first, ask you, is a very gentle pastoral tone. I ask you, I plead 
to you. But the second one is not really a command, but is a word of authority, a seriousness. Now we ask you and urge you. So in other words, he asks, he prays, he exhorts the church to seek a life that pleases God through sanctification. It's also second considerations that is an evident progress. So nevertheless, what he said, he keeps saying here that you have received from us as to matter in which you should live and please God. And indeed, you are doing so. And so you continue to progress more and more. He brings up the good behavior, the everything they are doing good in this matter of faith and love and serving and helping the poor. But he wants also to uh, uh, show their progress, but also his concerns that they don't stop it. Do it more and more. Doing good works, we should never get tired of it. Worshiping our Lord and be sanctified, we should never stop doing that. This is what he said. Uh, he saw the progress of their spiritual life as Thessalonian believers. But he's certain that they should continue progressively, more and more, and expressing in their mission to please God. Warren Wiersbe says that pleasing God means more than simple simply doing God's will. We can do God's will, but murmuring, complaining with not a cheerful heart. There was a person that recently in the Brazilian church, we kind of encouraged and correct her because she says, I always work with food. I, my whole life is work with food. I oversee food in a big place. And now I come to church, they always put me in the kitchen. I go to a baby shower or a birthday, they put me in the kitchen. And then one day she was doing, but very, you know, with a very funny face. So I come to her and says, you don't need to do that. Yeah, but they always see me to do that. So why did you accept? Uh, because they see this is my role. I say, well, you can do that, but not with this face. That is not acceptable. So say, I can't do, I'm tired. I need to refresh myself. But what Wearsby is telling is that you can do God's will, you can obey God, and you still not please him. So if you do it, do it full heart, so bold and love. Do it with a cheerful heart and express in your face. Jonah is an example. He disobeyed, and then there is a big fish in between, and then he obeys. Of course, being a big fish belly make you change your mind. Especially if you want to live, you better change. You change from disobeying to obeying. There was a big fish belly thing. But then he obeys. But he didn't change his mood. He didn't change his thoughts. He didn't change his <clears throat> heart. So he's an example. He resolves to obey. <clears throat> but he did not do from the heart. Sorry about that. <coughs> Remember the fish made me afraid of. So 
he eventually resolves to obey God, but he didn't not do from the heart. Jonah sat outside Nineveh, angry with everybody, including the Lord, because God promised to destroy Nineveh, and now God saved Nineveh. The other guy is the elderly brother of the prodigal story, prodigal son. The elder obeyed his father, but looks like he didn't like his father. He was not delighted in his relationship with his father. He lives as a slave in the father's house. So, with that in mind, when God asks you to be holy, do you, do you feel angry with God? Do you feel he wants to steal your joy? Do you think he doesn't love you as much because he will stop what is fun in your life? No. But if you want to obey him, obey with sincerity of your heart. And then the third eloquent reason that Thessalonians believes, believers were to live in a way to please God because they have already been instructed in the truth. Paul declares with a strong word, paragelia, instructions, that denotes a command received from a superior which must be passed on. He was not yelling. He was not angry. But he says, remember, we warn you, and we have instruction in the truth. Let me illustrate this in our brother, Jordan. I don't know if he's there. I can't see well. I know he was there. I don't think he is there now. Anyway, better for me. So the other day, I was sneaking to the end. I was not feeling good. So I went, instead of going here, I went to the other door. And then Jordan and his kids were coming with him. And I don't know the context. I, I got to know later on. But there were some, you know, kids downstairs not obeying the teachers, doing some mess around here. And, oh, he's there. <laughs> Sorry about that. I heard. And then he's very polite in his posture as, you know, army guy. And he said, I think it was Harrison, but it could be the other one. I don't know then as well. And he says, how was the class today? Uh, good. Well, I have heard a report. And we're going to talk about it at home. <laughs> he didn't yell, but his words were like a command words. We talk home. And Diana said he did. <laughs> and the teacher appreciated that. That's what Paul is saying. There was a, a, a word from a superior that has to pass on. So Wiersbe says in the same line of thought, says that this term is part of military vocabulary and refers to orders given by a higher officer. We are the servants of God's army and we must obey his commands. Paul doesn't give a, a right command, but sounds like an order to be observed. And he says, to make the long story short, in the authority of the name of Jesus. In other words, in the same authority Jesus commands us or, or commands us or instructs us to do things, I speak as him. This is what Paul is saying. At this matter, you have to acknowledge, accept my words as I am Jesus talking to you in the same authority. And then we go for the second part. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Let's stop here. 
Second, pleasing God requires total abstinence, withdrawal from sexual immorality. So there is no negotiation with whatever is not pure, whatever is not holy, whatever compromise who you are as saints of God. This is what Paul is saying. There is a will of God. We should be sanctified. But Pastor Marshall, aren't we sanctified? Yes, we are sanctified. Once we are illuminated, once we are born again, once we are come to Christ, yes, we were sanctified. But we are not perfect. We are not sinless. We still are way to go. It's a process of sanctification that has started in the way you were saved and you end up in the step of faith one day when we'll be in glory. And we, as such, there is no stopping in the between. We started, we were made sanctified and holy, and we have to keep our lives clean by the blood of Christ. So that's what Paul is asking. Paul spent the two first verses to impress them for what he was bringing up. And this is what he's bringing up. Sanctification from sexual immorality. There is no halfway, no some way, no 10% has to be holy. As elected people, saved people, we are sanctified, but we should keep moving. We should remember we have his Holy Spirit abiding in us. And His Holy Spirit is working daily in our lives to prayers, to read the Bible, to the support of the brothers, to meet it together, to worship together, to receive prayers together in order we become as holy as God is one day. We have to imitate the way of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In a way, Paul is not asking perfection. There is no perfection. There is no way not to sin, but to be separated from the world, their values, their venue. And we should be separated from our flesh and its desires and the evil and the devil. We should be separated to God, consecrated to God. This is the sanctification and holiness Paul is asking. How? And then he uh, enumbers seven things. Avoiding sexual immorality. And then we go from there. First, avoiding sexual immorality. We have to remember the context that the Thessalonians were living. is one of the biggest cities in the antique world. And the same as Corinth, both cities were very uh, identified with sexual immorality, impurity. A lot of opportunities and venues to get lost on these situations. Both were 200,000 Thessalonica, 300,000 Corinth. Both were in the way of ships and, and knaves and all sort of people, all sort of entertainment and ladies to be a companionship for them and elsewhere. So Paul knows sex life in Greek, Roman world in the New Testament times was a chaos, was a lawless. At the time, the shame seemed to have vanished from the earth. Some people think, oh, now, pastor, you are outdated. We are living in a new era, in a new values. No, there is nothing new. It's as old as the Greco-Roman Empire. It's the same thing, maybe worse here than there. For example, you don't have that. 
but it's impossible to mention a Greek philosopher, a Greek character who we studied, who you praised for all their, their ideas and, and smart and wisdom, but we forget that. There is no Greek character who did not have his retira. It's a Greek word. It's his mistress. I didn't know that, but I was studying. Alexander the Great had his Thais, who after his death of 33, married Ptolemy of Egypt and became the mother of many kings. Aristotle, we know him, he had Erphilia. Plato has Archnesis. Pericles has Aspathia, who wrote his discourse. Sophocles has Archipe. So marriage, even in that time, ties we were belated. Marriage was not lasting. Divorce was awkwardly easy already in that time. And then Seneca wrote in Rome, women marry to divorce and divorce to marry. Can you understand that? When I see my family, I, I understand that. That's what happens. Morality was dead, he says. Innocence is not rare. It's not rare. It's non-existent. So this is the picture Paul have and the disciples have on those Asian areas. To go further, a little bit more, but not too long, otherwise we get sick of it. But Caligula, the emperor, lived in a habitual incest with his sister Drusilla. Nero's lust didn't even spare his own mother, Drusilla, or Agrippina, who after he murdered her. And homosexuality in Rome was scandalous. Our historian named Gibbon states that the 50 emperors, only Claudius, who had his wife betrayed him, he was the only one who was not homosexual. All of the others 14 were. And then this great Greek orator, Dismosnes, says, the Greeks have prostitutes for pleasure, concubines for daily needs for the body, and wives for procreating kids. So the Apostle Paul could not silence under this circumstance. They were loving, they have faith, they have good deeds, and now they have to be careful what is around them because this is the context they came from. So Paul stands against the sexual immorality by writing this letter, by writing this chapter as an important city in Greece. Paul knew many of them from Thessalonica came from this background. Maybe they had some mistress in their past or previous life. Maybe some of them were following some of these things already because of the time already the church grew. Most Thessalonians tied their religion with sexuality. And every time there was property with the prostitutes, they would build temples. And Paul warns them radically. You may ask, Pastor Marshall, Marshall, what's the point for us? Well, everything around us, from selling a toothpaste for a big, a big uh, expensive car, is labeled with sex. There is always 
a woman, always a man, always something, a nudity, even in the propagandas, old movies, you tell, you know. So Paul wants us to warn them, and I want to warn us through this chapter. Second, learning how to control your body. So seven things. First, abstain. Second, learn how to control your own body. And quickly here, there is a, a discussion. You can read page of page. Is this, uh, is he saying the vessel is chaos, is a, a, a person, a wife, or he's telling about his body? And most of them says both. Even though John Stott says, I'd rather say, even though it's not the best description for a woman, it's not very respectful, but this is kind of, he says, get your buddy, get your wife, or wife, get your husband in order to be holy. So the Greek word here, it says it's a kind of container, a, a, a recipient. But he has in mind probably a wife or a husband, or he stays single through the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody is able to control our sinful desires without the work of the Holy Spirit. No one. And even with him, if you don't remember, we're going to fall. So the word he is trying to talk here is porneia. That comes pornography, vision of porno. But it's a general term that includes at least fornication and adultery. So in other words, Paul is saying there has not to be intercourse sexual activity outside marriage. There is no way to have this intimacy unless you are married. And if you are not married and you want that, get married. And if you are not finding a right person with the right motive, control your body or find your mate and marry. So then he comes to the holy and honorable. Even getting married, you have to understand. It's not like then. You won't have unfaithfulness. You won't have a second uh, mistress. You won't go beyond that. And even inside, the marriage doesn't legalize doing bad things, violence, rape, or whatever. You have to have your marriage holy and honorable. So John Stott said that God gave a practical principle to guide his reader in the sexual behavior. He says, sex has a God-given context, and sex has a God-given style. So it's in the Bible. It's in Genesis. Jesus, again, talked about it. You won't see anywhere in the Bible that is the other way. It has to be in this God-given context, heterosexual marriage, monogamous, and with Fidelity. And the style, holiness and honor. He, later on, in 1 Corinthians 7 says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relation with his wife, and each woman has to have with her husband, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Is Paul command everybody to marry? Of course not. We don't know even if he was married or not. But he's saying, if you cannot control, pray, consider, and get married. Before the fall, we know marriage was designed to be for the light of humans, for procreation, for a good companionship. But after the fall, 
would say that there was an addition. Marriage also can be a remedy not to sin, a prevention not to sin in the way Paul is talking. So a godly marriage is a protection for not to live a promiscuous or immoral life and has to be honored. God has to be honored. Otherwise, he says, whoever rejects his instructions does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives his Holy Spirit. He keeps, not in passion. So who does that? The pagans. But they don't know God. They don't know God. They don't love God. They avoid things from God. There is no reason for them. But we want to please God with our lives. Pagans do not. So if you are Christians, we don't be like others that they don't know God. We don't want to be driven by passionate, but love for God. So from verse 3 to 8, he brings the centeredness to morality. It's God's will. There will be a judgment. There is a call. There is a spirit gift. There is an appeal to please God. And John Stott rearranged, he summarized, he puts in a very interesting order. First, God's call is to holiness. He's telling them because he's holy. Second, God's will is our holiness. So this is God's will. Third, God's spirit is a Holy Spirit. So this is the root, the foundation, the base. Why we want to be holy? Because the spirit who abides in us is holy, and we don't want to make him sad or quench his spirit. Fourth, God's judgment will fall upon unholiness. And then we come for the third part. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. And make it your ambition. What Paul is saying in this third and important part, and the second biggest part in his second challenge, that is for us, we want to please God, or pleasing God, requires a brotherly love. Yesterday, Pastor Paul was with us in the celebration of one year of Joy's existence. And we had maybe 150 people here. We had a beautiful service, long, compared to the others that was one hour, 15, two hours, and we had a wonderful dinner. But one thing I realized, in order for that dinner to serve 150 people, I think there were 50 people work from one until 10. And others who work after until whatever they clean up. I thought in three days they wouldn't be cleaned up, but they did. A good job. Why is that? Because there is a love between brothers and sisters to come together as servants to love each other and to love God above and beyond anything. So Paul exhorts, appeals, using again passionate words. He acknowledged they are doing well. They do love their brothers, not with lust or sexual immorality. So keep doing that. I'm so scared when I see young people. I one day was young people. And how much love they love for each other until one looks specially for the other 
other sex and starts to like more than they should as brother and sister. If it's for good love, it's for a marriage, great. If it's not, it's harmful. We have to be careful how we treat each other. Because the idea, main idea here, Paul is talking about uh, the, the love in a family. It's a, a blood, brother and sister's love like in a family. In normally case, maybe not in a Portuguese context because I've seen weird things. Normally you don't, the bed of your brother and sister in blood. And you, do, you don't treat them badly, you don't trick them, you don't steal their money, you don't do bad stuff. So that's what Paul is saying. Keep doing it better and better. Because God is love. And God's love is holy. And our love for God and our love for one another must be motivated by holy living. So this is what Paul is talking about. So in other words, the business of sanctification, this call for holiness, extends every aspect of our lives. If I love my brother, if I sell my car, I have to tell my car is good shape or my car has this and this and this problem. Do you still want to buy? Yes or no? If I love my brother and my sister, I don't come close to them because I have some interest in what is the outcome of this friendship. If I love uh, my brother and my sister, I respect their body. I would respect my brother's daughter. I would respect my, you know, friend's sister because she is being prepared to have a husband. He is prepared to have a wife. Oh, they are being single for God's glory. If I go over that, I am not loving my brother. I'm stealing the joy of that father or that mother to bring her daughter without many concerns. If I'm doing wrong in business, in finances, if I take money and don't pay back, I'm robbing my brother. I'm stealing from my brother. I am damaging God's image in me. So these business sanctifications go to all aspects so that he ends with lead a quiet life, mind their own business and be supporting or self-supported. So there are a lot of things I could have said, but we are approaching the time. So just the four highlights Paul brings to us. Brotherly love is a duty. So he used the word philia or phileo. There are four words in Greek for love or more, but eros, sturgy, philia, and agape or agapao. The Bible only speaks about two, philia or phileos or philos, and agape. In here is Philadelphia, the same name of the church, because Philia is love between brothers or marriage, and Delphus is brother, and love for a brother. So this is what he's talking about. A deep affection manifesting friendship in love between blood brothers. This is he wants, and this love must grow. He has to grow. And there is no boundary to grow in love for our brothers. This love is responsible. I work hard. I serve hard. I consider your tiredness. I'm responsible for you. I'm not being lazy. There is the parousia. There is the expectation of the return of Christ. Some people are using that for not to work. And then they were borrowing other means to live. That is wrong. 
some Greek philosophers have impressed their mind. Uh, philosophers don't work. They think they, they have money from somewhere. Others work for them. So they were, in a way, not working with their hands, not making profit. Paul says, you work until the Lord comes. Don't be lazy. Don't rest on others. Brother love is blameless. So we should not give bad testimony. We should give good testimony. Brotherly love is responsible and blameless because we also want to gain the respect of others. So William Berkeley emphasized that what is important is not only the words, but the works in this case, in this context. Not only what you say, but what you live. Our life should be the sermon that wins men to Christ. Are you finalized? Remember one experience and the conclusion. Recently, last week, we had a fellow, a brother, who was baptized with his wife. And he was baptized a year ago, and he left to Brazil for good. And he, his wife baptized and his kids. Amazingly, I never preached the gospel to him. Amazingly, I never described Jesus in a way I should have had it. Amazingly, I was not the channel that brought him to Christ. Nevertheless, when he spoke up before his, the baptism of his wife, he says, that man, that man is the responsible. Tried him Why I'm here today. I look at him. He says, he never said much about his faith. I'm excuse to use my own example in this particular because I believe that's how we should live. He always, and three times we got together, he knows how I live, he knows all my friends, he wasn't my friend, he became my friend, and I just at the end with God's love and some words of Bible, of course, but not preaching the gospel, I only said, well, if you consider, come around. Three times I said, if you want to come, come around. I never said, come to my church. So if you are interested one day with spiritual journey, yeah, come to our service, but like that. He started coming to James North a month before he comes to Joy, and he got converted. And I thought, me? Diego preached the gospel. Juliano preached for a year. Others did, but he says, he is the response why I'm here. He says, well, that was the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus. But also the Holy Spirit who lives in me and lives in you. We should live a life that inspires holiness, sanctification, in order for people to bring or to be drawn to Jesus Christ. Concluding, you may think in your life, you may think today, what am I missing? How good I'm doing in this area? What I've, I could be blamed of? Am I stopped growing Christ? Am I stopped my pursuit of holiness? Because I may be, I'm older now, I don't need as much as before. We are wrong. We always need it. Think about one area in your life. After this song, I'm going to ask the band to come and pastor for you pray. Think about an area that you can do better. You can excel. Think about how God can make you a good witness, powerful, even if you don't speak as much, if you don't speak so boldly, how God can use your life. Are you concluding with two quotations from Tim Keller, our 
great brother that just passed away Friday. The first one, he says, because he always emphasized grace. And this is for us. If you think we are doing more, maybe we are not. So he says, the gospel says that you are simultaneously more sinful and more flat that you have ever dared believe. We are. Yet, you are loved and accept than you ever dare hope. So there is hope. We may not be doing greatly as together, but we can do better. We can love our brothers and sisters better. We can give right away our name to the picnic. We can see the effort of the men here put the men together and everybody has something else to do. We should put our name in this retreat. Even though I may think I'm doing greatly, I can do better. When our pastor says, oh, we have this shortage of $100,000, it is not for the church to have banquet. It's to save people from our neighborhood. It's to pay for 30 of our kids to raise these summer activities. We can do better, and we want to be holy. Tim also says this, Christianity sex ethic was understood by the apostles to be a non-negotiable part of the orthodoxy, the doctrine of our core beliefs of Christianity. What Christians taught and practiced about sexuality was as much a necessary implication of the gospel and the resurrection as were care for the poor and the equality of race. This makes it impossible to argue, as many try to do, that what the Bible says about caring for the poor is right, but what it says about sex is outmoded and should be discarded. And Paul today is going to say, no, we should do it. Let us pursue holiness with all our love to please our God in heaven. With this song, I want you to think in areas that God can bless you even more as our brothers in Thessalonians. And Pastor Paul will lead wherever the Holy Spirit uh, put in his heart to lead us in this way of sanctification. Without it, nobody will see God. God bless you.